Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. I am your host, Isabella Gutierrez, and we're going to continue reading The Scarlet Letter, Chapter 5, Hester at Her Needle. Now, without further ado, happy listening. Hester Prine's term of confinement was now at an end. Her prison door was thrown open, and she came forth into the sunshine, which, falling on all alike, seemed to her sick and morbid heart, as if meant for no other purpose than to reveal the scarlet leather on her breast. Perhaps there was a more real torture in her first unattended footsteps from the threshold of the prison than even in the possession and spectacle that have been described, where she was made the common infamy, at which all mankind was summoned to point its finger. Then she was supported by an unnatural tension of the nerves, and by all the com- the combative energy of her character, which enabled her to convert the scene into a kind of lurid triumph. It was, moreover, a separate and insulated event to occur but once in her lifetime, and to meet which, therefore reckless of economy, she might call upon the vital strength that would have suffered for many quiet years. The very law that condemned her, a giant of stern figures, but with vigor and to support, as well as to annihilate in his iron arm, had helped her up though a terrible ordeal of her ignominy. But now, with this unattended walk from her prison door, began the daily custom, and she was either sustain and carry it forward by the ordinary resources of her nature or sink beneath it. She could no longer borrow from the future to help her through the present grief. Tomorrow would bring its own trial with it, so would the next day, and so would the next, each its own trial, and yet the very same that was now so unterribly grievous to be born. The days of far-off future would toil onward, still with the same burden, burden for her to take up and bear along with her, but never to fling down, for the accumulating days and added years would pile up their misery upon the heap of shame. Throughout them all, giving up her individuality, she would become the general symbol at which the preacher and moralist might point, and in which they might vivify and embody their images of woman's frailty and sinful passion. Thus, the young and pure would be taught to look at her, with the scarlet letter flaming on her breast, at her, the child of honorable parents, at her, the mother of a babe that would hereafter be a woman, at her, who had once been innocent, as the figure, the body, the reality of sin. And over her grave, the infamy that she must carry thither would be her only monument. It may be marvelous that, with the world before her, kept by no restrictive cause of her condemnation, which the limits of the Puritan settlement, so remote and so obscure, free to return to her birthplace or to any other European land, 
and there hide her character and identity under a new exterior, as completely as if emerging into another state of being, and having also the passes of the dark, inscrutable forest open to her, where the wilderness of her nature might assimilate itself with a people whose customs and life were alien from the law that had condemned her. It may seem marvelous that this woman should still call that place her home, where and where only she must needs the type of shame. But there is a fatality, a feeling so irresistible and inevitable that it has the force of doom, which almost invariably compels human beings to linger around and haunt ghost-like, the spot where some great and marked event has given the color to their lifetime. And still, the most irresistibly and darker the, the tinge it, that saddens it. Her sin, her ignominy, were the roots which she had struck into the soil. It was if a new birth, with stronger assimilations than the first, had converted the forest land, still so uncongenial to every other pilgrim and wanderer, into Hester Prynne's wild and dreary, dreary but long home. All other scenes of earth, even that village of rural England, where happy in fancy and stainless maidenhood seemed yet to be in her mother's keeping, like garments put off long ago, were foreign to her in comparison. The chain that bound her here was of iron links, and galling to her inmost soul, but could never be broken." It might be, too, doubtless it was so, although she hid the secret from herself and grew pale whenever it struggled out of, of her heart, like a serpent from its hole. It might be that another feeling kept her within the scene and pathway that had been so fatal. There dwelt, there trod the feet of one with whom she deemed herself connected in a union, that, unrecognized on earth, would bring them together before the bar of final judgment, and, and make that their marriage altar for a joint fury of endless retribution. Over and over again, the temper of souls had thrust this idea upon Hester's contemplation and laughed at the passionate and desperate joy with which she sighs, seized, and then strove to cast it from her. She barely looked the idea in the face, and has hastened to bar it in its dungeon. What she compelled herself to believe, what finally she reasoned upon as her motive for continuing a resident of New England, was half a truth and half a self-delusion. Here, she said to herself, had been the scene of her guilt, and here should be the scene of her earthly punishment. And so, perchance, the torture of her daily shame would at length purge her soul and work out another purity than that which she had lost, more saint-like because the result of martyrdom. Hester Prine, therefore, did not flee. On the outskirts of the town, within the verge of Peninsula, but not in close vicinity to any other habitation, there was a small thatched cottage. It had been built by an 
earlier settler and abandoned because the soil about it was too fertile for cultivation, while its comparative remoteness put it out of sphere so that social activity which already marked the habits of the immigrants. Emigrants. It stood on the shore, looking across the basin of the sea and at the forest-covered hills towards the west. A clump of scrubby trees, such as alone grew on the peninsula, did not so much conceal the cottage from view as seemed to denote that here was some object which would fain have been, or at least ought to be, concealed. In this little lonesome dwelling, with some slender means that she possessed, and by the license of magistrates, who still kept an inquisitional watch over her, Hester established herself with her infant child. A mystic shadow of suspicion immediately attached itself to the spot. Children too young to comprehend wherefore this woman should be shut out from the sphere of human charities would creep nigh enough to behold her plying her needle at the cottage window or standing at the doorway or laboring in her little garden or coming forth along the pathway that led townward and discerning the scarlet leather on her breast would scamper off with a strange contagious fear lonely as hester was and without a friend on earth who dared to show himself she however incurred no risk of want she possessed an art that sufficed even in a land that afforded comparatively little scope for its exercise to supply food for her thriving infant and herself it was the art then as now almost the only one within a woman's grasp of needlework she bore on her breast in a curiously embroidered leather a specimen of her delicate and imaginative skill of which the dames of a court might gladly have availed themselves to to add the richer and more spiritual adornment of human ingenuity to their fabrics of silk and gold here indeed in the sable simplicity that generally characterized the puritanic modes of dress there might be an infrequent call for finer productions of her handiwork yet the taste of the age demanding whatever was elaborate in compositions of this kind did not fail to extend its influence over our stern progenitors who had cast behind them so many fashions which it might seem harder to dispense with public ceremonies such as ordinations the installation of magistrates and all that could give majesty to the forms in which a new government manifested itself to the people were, as a matter of policy, marked by a stately and well-conducted ceremonial and sombre, but yet a studied magnificence. Deep ruffs, painfully wrought bands, and gorgeously embroidered gloves were all deemed necessary to the official state of men assuming the reins of power, and were readily allowed to individuals dignified by rank or wealth even while sumptuary laws forbade these and similar extravagances to the plebeian order 
In the array of funerals, too, whether for the apparel of the dead body or to tip typify by manifold emblematic devices of sable cloth and snowy lawn, the sorrows of the survivors. There was a frequent and characteristic demand for such labor as Hester Prine could supply. Baby linen for babies then were robes of state, afforded still another possibility of toil and em emulent. By degrees, nor very slowly, her handiwork became what would now be termed the fashion. Whether from commiseration for a woman, if so miserable a destiny, or from the morbid curiosity that gives a fictitious value even to common or worthless things, or by whatever other intangible circumstance was then, as now, sufficient to bestow on some persons what others might seek in vain, or because Hester really filled a gap which must otherwise have remained vacant. It is certain that she had already a fairly requited employment for as many hours as she saw fit to occupy with her needle. Vanity, it may be, chose to mortify itself by putting on, for ceremonials of pomp and state, the garments that had been wrought by her sinful hands. Her needlework was seen on the roof of the governor, military men wore it on their scarfs, and the minister on his band. It decked the baby's little cap, it was shut up to be milled dude and molder away in the coffins of the dead but it is not recorded that in a single instance her skill was called an aid to embroider the white veil which was to cover the pure blushes of a bride the exception indicated that ever relentless rigor with which society frowned upon her sin Hester sought not to acquire anything beyond a substance of the plainest and most ascetic description for herself, and a simply abundance for her child. Her own dress was of the coarsest materials and was most somber hue, with only that one ornament, the scarlet leather, which it was her doom to wear. The child's attire, on the other hand, was distinguished by a fanciful, or we might rather say, a fantastic ingenuity, which served indeed to heighten the airy charm that early began to develop itself in the little girl, but which appeared to have also a deeper meaning. We may speak further of it hereafter, except for the small expenditure and decoration of her infant. Hester bestowed all her superfluous means in charity on wretches less miserable than herself and who not unfrequently insulted the hand that fed them much of the time which she might readily have applied to the better efforts of her art she employed in making coarse garments for the poor it was probable that there was an idea of penance in this mode of occupation in that she offered up a real sacrifice of enjoyment in devouting so many hours to such rude handiwork. She had her nature a rich 
voluptuous, oriental characteristic, a taste for the gorgeously beautiful, which, save in the exquisite productions of her needle, found nothing else in all the possibilities of her life to exercise itself upon. Women derive a pleasure incomprehensible to the other sex from the delicate toil of the needle. To Hester Prine, it might have been a mode of expressing, and therefore soothing, the passion of her life. Like all other joys, she rejected it as sin. This morbid meddling of conscience with an immaterial matter betokened, it is to be feared, no genuine and steadfast penitence, but something doubtful, something that might be deeply wrong beneath. In this manner, Hester Prine came to have a part to perform in the world. With her native energy of character and rare capacity, it could not be entirely cast her off, although it had set a mark upon her, more intolerable to a woman's heart than that which branded the brow of Cain. In all her intercourse with society, however, there was nothing that made her feel less if she belonged to it. Every gesture, every word, and even the silence of those with whom she came in contact implied that, and often expressed, that she was banished and as much alone as if she inhabited another sphere or communicated with the common nature by other organs and senses than the rest of humankind. She stood apart from mortal interests, yet close beside them, like a ghost that revisits the familiar fireside and can no longer make itself seen or felt. No more smile with the household joy, nor mourn with the kindred sorrow, or should it succeed in manifesting its forbidden sympathy, awakening only terror and horrible repugnance. These emotions, in fact, and its bitterness scorn besides, seemed to be the sole portion that she retained in the universal heart. It was not an age of delicacy, and her position, although she understood it well, was and was in little danger of forgetting it, was often brought before her vivid self-preconception, like a new anguish, by the rudest touch upon the tenderest spot. The poor, as we have already said, whom she sought out to be the objects of her bounty, often reviled at the hand that was stretched forth to succor them. Dames of elevated rank, likewise, whose doors she entered in the way of her occupation, were accustomed to distill drops of bitterness into her heart, sometimes through that alchemy of quiet malice, by which women can concoct a subtle potion from ordinary trifles, and sometimes also by a coarser expression that fell upon the sufferer's defenseless breast like a rough blow, blow upon the ulcerated wound. Hester had schooled herself long and well. She never responded to these attacks, save by a flush of crimson that rose irrepressibly over her pale cheek, and again subsided into the depths of her bosom. She was patient, a martyr indeed, but she forbore to pray for her enemies, lest, in spite of her forgiving aspirations, the words of the blessing should stubbornly twist themselves into a curse.
continually and in a thousand other ways did she feel the innumerable throbs of anguish that had been so cunningly contrived for her by the undying and ever active sentence of the Puritan tribunal. Clergymen paused in the streets to address words of exhortation and brought a crowd with its mingled grin and frown around the poor sinful woman. If she entered the church, trusting to share the Sabbath smile of the universal father, it was often her mishap to find herself the text of discourse. She knew to have a dread of children, for they had imbibed from their parents a vague idea of something horrible in this dreary woman gliding silently through the town with never any companion but one only child. Therefore, first allowing her to pass, they pursued her at a distance with shrill cries and the utterance of a word that had no distinct purport to their own minds, but was nonetheless terrible to her as proceeding from the lips that babbled it unconsciously. It seemed to argue so wide a diffusion of her shame that all nature knew of it. It could have caused her no deeper pain that had had the leaves of the trees whispered the dark story among themselves. Had the summer breeze murmured about it, had the wintry blast shrieked it loud, Another peculiar torture was felt in the gaze of a new eye. When strangers looked curiously at the scarlet leather, and none ever failed to do so, they branded it afresh into Hester's soul, so that oftentimes she could scarcely refrain, yet always did refrain, from covering the symbol with her hand. But then, again, the accustomed eye had likewise its own anguish to inflict. Its cool stare, its cool stare of familiarity was intolerable. From first to last and short, Hester Prine had always this dreadful agony in feeling the, a human eye upon the token. The spot never grew callous. It seemed, on the contrary, to grow more sensitive with daily torture. But sometimes, once in many days, or perchance in many months, she felt an eye, a human eye, upon the ignominious brand that seemed to give a momentary relief, as if half of her agony were shared. The next instant, back it all rushed again, with still a deeper throb of pain, for in that brief interval she had sinned anew. Had Hester sinned alone? Her imagination was somewhat affected, and she had been of a softer moral and intellectual fiber, would have still more so by the strange and solitary anguish of her life. Walking to and fro with those lonely footsteps in the little world with which she was outwardly connected, it now and then appeared to Hester, if altogether fancy, it was nevertheless too potent to be resisted. She felt or fancied then that the scarlet leather had endowed her with a new sense. She shuddered to believe, yet could not 
help believing that it gave her a sympathetic knowledge of a hidden sin in other hearts. She was terror-stricken by the revelations that were thus made. What were they? Could they be other than the insidious whispers of the bad angel who would frame the persuaded who Frain have persuaded the struggling woman, as yet only half it's his victim, that the outward guise of purity was but a lie, and that if truth were everywhere to be shown, a scarlet leather would blaze forth on many a bosom beside Hester Prynes? Or must she receive those intimidations? Intimid- intimations? intimations so obscure yet so distinct as truth in all her miserable experience there was nothing else so awful and so loathsome as this sense it perplexed as well as shocked her by the irreverent opportunities of the occasion that brought it into vivid action. Sometimes the red infamy upon her breast would give a sympathetic throb as she passed near a venerable minister or magistrate, the model of piety and justice, to whom that age of antique reverence looked up as to a mortal man in fellowship with angels. What evil thing is that hand? Is that hand? would Hester say to herself. Lifting her reluctant eyes, there would be nothing human within the scope of view, save from the form of this earthly saint. Again, a mystic sisterhood would contumaciously assert itself, as she met the sanctified frown of some matron, who, according to the rumor of all tongues, had kept, kept cold snow within her bosom throughout life. That unsunned snow in the matron's bosom and the burning shame on Hester Prynes. What had the two in common? Or, once more, the electric thrill would give her warning. Behold, Hester, here is a companion. And, looking up, she would detect the eyes of a young maiden glancing at her scarlet leather shyly in the side and quickly averted with a faint chill crimson in his her cheeks as if her purity were somewhat sullied by that momentary glance oh friend whose talesman was that fatal symbol wouldst thou leave nothing whether in youth or age for this poor sinner to revere such loss of faith is ever one of the status results of sin be it accepted as a proof that all was not corrupt in this poor victim of her own frailty and a man's hard law that hester prine yet struggled to believe that no fellow mortal was guilty like herself the vulgar who in whose dreary old times were always contributing a grotesque horror to what interested their imaginations had a story about the scarlet leather, which we might readily work up into a terrific legend. They averred that the symbol was not mere scarlet cloth, tinged in earthly dye pot, but was red hot with infernal fire, and could be seen glowing all, all alight whenever Hester Prine walked abroad in the nighttime. 
And, we must needs say, it seared Hester's bosom so deeply that perhaps there was more truth in the rumor than our modern incredulity may be inclined to admit. All right, and with that, we finished chapter five. Now, we're going to try to be a bit more organized this commentary, and we're going to start off with analyzing the title. Yep, I bet you didn't think about that, huh? I bet you thought we were going to jump into the contents of the chapter. No, we're going to analyze the title, which will kill two birds with one stone, because we're also going to talk about the beginning of the chapter. But... Remember, the main objective of this is to analyze the title. Now, the title is um, Heather at Her Needle, if I remember correctly. I said Heather. Hester! Hester at Her Needle. (laughs) Sorry, I think I keep on thinking about the Conan Gray song. Anyways, Hester at Her Needle. Now, In the beginning of the chapter, it is established that, oh, Hester, she's released from prison and she settles in a cottage and she tends to herself and her child, right? And obviously, being a single mom who is now exiled by the whole town and not looked upon and being pitied or felt bad for but seen as this horrible monster of sin she has to you know uh fend for herself and find out what ways to you know have some income because everything in this world at least for a very long time has been achieved through wealth and money so she 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 needs some money and as it was implied earlier she was the one who did the beautiful embroiderment of the scarlet leather and we have already established that heather's hester's hester hester's outfit is very catchy not catchy but you know very eye-catching very eye-catching it's beautiful but it's not the common it's not common that type of fashion is not common now throughout the chapter uh they describe how hester's work hester's work is something it's beautiful and it became the fashion throughout the years right but you know hester uh hester's work is seen everywhere in the town you know the minister wears it military officers wear it even dead people in their funerals wear it the only exception is (laughs) you guessed it a bride's gown because it would be um ironic if hester did that so funny right anyways so the title of the chapter is a link it's linking it's connected to um hester's needlework because i mean she made the scarlet leather with that and uh she is now making a living off of her needlework 
so that is the meaning of um the chapter the uh, the chapter's title now moving on to a metaphor of the cottage now you must be thinking the cottage what does the cottage have to do anything what what it's it's just where she's living no you're wrong you have to think outside of the box and once i'm done explaining this you're gonna be like oh and then you're gonna notice that in this team i'm the one who's right no just kidding it's a joke it's a joke but um if you recall uh, throughout the chapter a big part of the of the chapter yeah most of the chapter um it is described how hester feels like she's been exiled but she's not she hasn't been fully outcast and do part part of that is due to the fact that her needlework is very respected and it's seen in very high high regard high regard in the towns but when it comes to anything other than her needlework she is seen as this creature of sin and terrifying even the children in the town even though they don't understand what they're saying they follow her around and murmur things about her because obviously their parents have influenced them and you know children they say things that they hear from their parents right so hester she feels like she's kind of like a ghost because you know ghosts their spirits who are not allowed in heaven but you know they're dead so they can't really be human either so um hester she feels like a ghost she feels that she's in the community but she's not in the community you know she's just there she's standing beside it but that's about it and how this is linked to the cottage well if you remember uh when our author was describing the cottage or the location of the cottage not the cottage itself but the location this is what i want to um highlight the location of the cottage it is not part of the town i mean it is but it's not in the grand area of the town it's not in the grand area of the town it is by the forest but it's not part of the town but if 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 a town's person were to stand out and look um look towards the cottage they they could still see it but it it's a secluded call um a cottage right it's a secluded cottage and that kind of represents how hester feels she feels secluded but she's still part of the society she still lives there she still walks through the streets she's still um called upon because of her needlework so she and this cottage are kind of linked so that is why the location of this cottage is linked to is connected 
to Hester and her situation because it perfectly embodies what she is feeling. It is the physical embodiment of her um, feelings and her uh, current situation regarding her uh, punishment. Now, finally, since this chapter was kind of like, oh, what was Hester doing after she was released from jail? Um, Not a lot was revealed, but I do want to point out something very important. Because as we have been discussing throughout all of these, um, all these commentaries, we keep on mentioning the man. It's uh, the man that impregnated, um, Hester, the, the one, the, the father of her child. Because in all the chapters, save for chapter one, I think, he is mentioned or it is, he is implied or it's suggested, okay? His existence is made known at least once. And chapter five is no exception. Now, I have the little segment here that I really want us to pay attention to. It says... But sometimes, once in many days, or perchance in many months, she felt an eye, a human eye, upon the ignominious brand that seemed to give a momentary relief, as if half of her agony were shared. The next instant, back it all rushed again, still with a deeper throb of pain, for in that brief interval, she had sinned anew. Had Hester sinned alone? Now, I'd like to pay attention, like, that whole segment is very important, so we're going to analyze it um, uh, part by part. So, it starts off that saying that sometimes she, in many days or sometimes even in months, she feels a particular set of eyes on her right so to give some context if you forgot about this part of the book um or of the chapter she uh in this part they are describing how hester feels with all of the eyes on her now having eyes on her seems to be a recurring theme you know starting off with the three-hour public humiliation where the whole town was just staring at her or when she'd be walking on the street and a group of kids would just, you know, look at her, murmur, and just, you know, stare at her, point fingers. Or even a, a man, some men, they just stand there and then they just call a multitude of people to just, you know, gawk at her and judge her. So eyes are very are, are a very uh, recurring theme through this, but we don't have enough to really um, analyze it because it might just be a recurring theme in the beginning, not throughout the whole book. So we need to wait a bit for that. Patience, patience. But she says that she feels a particular set of eyes. And um, the next part that we're going to analyze is that it says that for a moment, she feels relief as if half of her agony were shared with her so she obviously she feels these set of eyes and instead of feeling attacked or 
harassed or judged or con um or having condescending um pair of eyes on her she feels relief which is kind of contradictory because the book just spent so many pages describing how she felt horrible with all the judgments and the condescending looks that she get from people but with these set of eyes she feels relief now one when one starts reading this you can start thinking okay maybe it's the shoulder guy cuz you know they used to be married and hester did feel bad for doing the thing she did to him and he was kind of kind but at the same time he was kind of mocking her but he was he was really kind and lenient towards her very gentle he even tended to her nervousness and the child right so you so you might think okay maybe it's his eyes that um give hester a moment of relief right but the next section it says that uh her agony is shared now maybe you can have the argument that it is our shoulder man robert chillingsworth but he he didn't share that agony with hester if you recall when they first met eyes he he put his finger to his mouth and you know told her to keep quiet he doesn't want to even be recognized as hester's husband so they're not really sharing any agony now that if if it's not our shoulder man who can it be so now we're going to pay attention to the other section which is uh that it all rushes back again a deeper throb of pain in that brief interval she had sinned anew now this this really heavily implies the man who is the father of her child because Hester's sin was to have intercourse while married to another man and she had intercourse while not married to this man and now she has a child so that is her sin adultery right and she sinned anew so this kind of heavily very heavily 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 suggests that it was that man and if you don't believe me let's look at the last um section of this segment had hester sinned alone that ladies and gentlemen is what tells it all because as i said last time conceiving a child is not a one person job it is a two person job you cannot perform photosynthesis and pump out a baby okay you need a man and a woman cuz that is how human anatomy works okay and hester doesn't want to reveal the identity of this mystery man she didn't want to reveal it to the court she didn't want to reveal it to her ex-husband 
shoulder guy, Robert Chillingsworth. It's kept a secret. We don't know why. I want to know why. But we don't know why. Why is she doing this? But obviously, those set of eyes that give her a moment of relief are the eyes of the man who she had uh, intercourse with. But it is just touched up. Touch up. It's only touched in that brief segment. So, obviously, this book is, you know, kind of giving us little crumbs, anticipating us, enticing us to want to know who this mystery man is. And it's working because I really want to know. Okay? And... I know I said that this was going to be the last part, but as I was talking about our mystery man, towards the end, uh, a page, no, half a page before, in my copy, it's page 80, uh, we are introduced to Hester's internal conflict might be a mini internal conflict, but it is an internal conflict where all of this seclusion and exile and judgment that she's getting from the society, she, she kind of, she hopes deep down that she's not the only sinner. So as she's walking around uh, the town, She's, she, she looks at many maidens, or uh, she notices main, many maidens, and she hopes that uh, she might not be the only one, but at the same time, she doesn't hope, she does not hope for this for anyone, because this was a very bad punishment. She has to wear this scarlet leather for the rest of her life, right? So... It, she, she even references the devil where she feels that the devil is whispering in her ear because she does not want to be alone, but she doesn't want to wish this fate to anyone. So that was some very interesting internal conf, um, conflict there, which obviously adds to her character development. And furthermore, going into Hester's character itself, you know, facing all of these issues, these being secluded by society and being looked down upon as this creature of terror and sin and all that's evil, she doesn't react to it. Like, she can't do much about it, but any other woman, I think, or at least I would, would break down at this day-to-day judgment and uh, being frowned upon on the daily, it would really affect me. It's obviously affecting Hester, but she acts as if it's nothing, as if she she just, you know, lives with it, and that's it. That's, That's how she's going to live the rest of her life. And she even pushes through, and she finds how to make a living for herself with his, um, which she knows that her needlework is very extravagant and beautiful. And she, and she uses that. 
So Hester is obviously a very smart woman and very strong one indeed because facing this exile every single day of her life and not breaking, not even once in the public eye is something very admirable. So Hester, she is a very strong lady and she needs to be recognized for that and that is all that i have to say for this chapter it was it was not a very revealing chapter but you know it was filled with the wonderful imagery which i again compliment so much because i love how it's written and also with some crumbs on who this mystery man is but other than that i have nothing else to say i hope you enjoyed today's episode and i'll see you in the